News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It's always good if we can take a moment to explain a little bit more about a story that you've seen the headlines for in the news, like this next one. You've probably seen this. Health Canada is going to be updating the labels for the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccines. They're going to add a potential side effect to that, something that has had very rare cases, uh, but they have been reported internationally. So is this something that you should be concerned about? What does all of this mean? Well, joining us now is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre and the person we turn to to explain this to us. Dr. Conway, thank you for being back with us. It is a pleasure to be back. Well, thank you, because I think people see these headlines and they always automatically think, I know I do, should I worry about this? Well, I think this is proof that the system works. As we give the COVID shots to millions, if not billions of people worldwide, there's a very robust surveillance system that is meant to detect rare, and I underline rare, side effects that were missed in the clinical trials because they only enrolled tens of thousands of individuals. So it is in this context that this complication called transverse myelitis and inflammation of the spinal cord was discovered in association with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It is a very rare side effect, but it is being revealed to us as soon as it is identified and it needs to be part of the discussion. Okay, so then what do we know about this side effect? Well, it's an inflammation of the spinal cord that is occurring shortly after the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is administered. It is very rare. The exact uh, prevalence or incidence, uh, how often it happens, is, is probably one in a million or less, probably less. And it seems to be uh, reversible. It seems to not cause any permanent damage. We have similar types of side effects. You may recall that we've talked about Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is an inflammation of the nerves associated with vaccines. So it is a little bit like that. Uh, But again, the benefits of the vaccine far, far outweigh its risks, even with this new knowledge in hand. Okay, so where did this appear? Like, I know previously we'd been concerned about certain age groups. Like, what do we know about where this appears? Well, I think it just got identified, so it's a little bit too early to be that specific, but it's being flagged to us uh, at this very early stage, um, and uh, and people may want to use this as part of a, of a decision as to which, uh, which vaccine they are going to get. We know that the Johnson & Johnson is being brought into Canada, uh, especially uh, aimed at uh, healthcare providers who have decided not to take an mRNA vaccine, not to take a COVID shot, so that they can be part of, uh, of the vaccinated uh, groups. But here again, this, is, this was not seen in the clinical trials. It, it, is, it, is extremely, it is extremely rare. And we would love for vaccines to be completely sort of 100% safe without any, any side effects. But unfortunately, this is not the case. Right. But we could say that about any medication, can't we, Dr. Conway? I mean, we've all seen the drug commercials on TV. There's always side effects. Well, it's, it's, it's entertaining to sort of see these, these commercials. You're exactly right. They talk about how liberating this new medication is for this particular condition. And as everyone's smiling at each other, feeling healthier. And then there's this very rapid fire. Yes. And if they cause this, 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 and this, and this, 
and and please talk to your doctor. And, right. And but but I, it it is it is part to me. This is this is part of reality. And once again, when people say that there are side effects of these of these vaccines, COVID vaccines, that they haven't told us about, that they're hiding. This is absolutely not the case. And these recent reports, this, this talk of transfers, my life, is proof that it isn't the case. People are watching, and as soon as something happens, they tell us. This is what I wonder about that, though. Like, people take, you know, very common medication for high blood pressure or cholesterol-lowering medications, and I wonder if they've gone to all the trouble to look up the side effects of those medications. Well, I think this is all part of our learning together, is how do we make ourselves better, how do we make society better in some cases, it's medicines, it's vaccines. All of these have been shown to be safe and effective in very large clinical trials. Anything your doctor or healthcare provider will be, will be prescribing to you fits under that. But none of it, none of them have um, are, are completely safe and without, uh, and without side effects. So it's very reassuring, I think, about the COVID vaccines, whichever brand you speak of, right. is that they have now been administered to a billion, a quarter of the planet, has received a vaccine. It's almost 2 billion people. And so people are watching for side effects. Experts are watching for the side effects. And what there is is what they've told us, and it's rare. Okay, so we know this is about the AstraZeneca and the J&J. Now, about right. a quarter of a million Canadians have received two doses of the AstraZeneca. I'm one of them. Uh, so what are the symptoms that they are talking about? Well, in terms of the transverse myelitis, it would be uh, some weakness uh, and uh, numbness uh, starting in the uh, in the lower extremities. So if you get any of these kinds of of, uh, of side effects or anything else that is similar to that, you should consult a physician to make sure that it isn't anything that requires any other uh, intervention and then just be monitored. Okay, so and what did you think of the news this week that the government is kind of bringing back in some of the J&J vaccine? Well, I think we want to get everyone to be part of the solution. And I think if the reason some people were hesitating to get a vaccine is they weren't comfortable with the mRNA technology, since these are the first two vaccines, Moderna and the Pfizer, the first two mRNA vaccines that have been uh, produced and made available commercially, and they wanted another vaccine that had been shown to be very effective in clinical trials, and one where you will be considered vaccinated after one dose, although it's clear that it'll require a second dose, but it, it just gets you to be part of the solution more quickly, and, it, and it's presenting an option. We all want to be in this together, and if that's what makes someone say yes, bring it on. Okay, how close are we to wrapping up to having children vaccinated now in BC? My sense is it will happen before the holiday season. Uh, I'm heartened by two that's things. Soon. The fact that significant, yeah, I think so. I think it will be possible. Uh, that and, and, and what, what reassures me is that a significant proportion of, of children, I don't have the figure at hand, but it's, it's at least uh, tens of thousands of, of children and their families that have registered to get the vaccine as soon as it is available. So I think if we continue the discussion about why it's important to vaccinate children against COVID as soon as we can, then we, uh, then we should get... Uh, um, we should get it out there as soon as it is approved by regulatory authorities. And we will see what's going on in the United States as they've already begun these programs. And uh, we'll be reassured by the fact that there is no new uh, safety signal that hasn't been identified. Right. And that's, I guess, the same for the booster shots, too, right? Because in the United States, they are ramping up with those. Absolutely. I think there is uh, now a building consensus that we will all require a booster and that many of us are thinking this is going to be a yearly thing 
that there will be a combined flu shot and COVID shot that will be administered on a yearly basis beginning next fall. So I think let's get used to it. I think the boosters are going to be needed. The third shots are going to be needed. And uh, it'll help us all move forward together in, uh, in COVID world that we can cope with. Well, as always, I feel better after talking to you, Dr. Conway. So thank you for joining us. I look forward to next time. Well, he better be in a good mood this morning. Why wouldn't he be? But we'll find out. Uh, Vanny Sartini is with us, acting head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Vanny, how are you? I'm very good, Simi. How are you? But I realize you're always in a good mood, though, aren't you? Yeah, uh, let's say almost always. Right? Almost always. <laughs> okay, but now congratulations, first off. The team is going to the playoffs. How does it feel? Well, it's been fantastic. It's been... Uh, <clears throat> last week has been amazing uh, against uh, the uh, Seattle playing this uh, game in front of 25,000 people. Uh, then we have... We celebrated a lot. You can tell from my voice that it's still a little bit uh, not 100 percent. But uh, uh, no, it's been it's been truly truly beautiful. Uh, the night at BC Place with all the fans, uh, it, it was uh, it was great. I mean, that's been quite a couple of months. I mean, you were in 13th and last place in the Western Conference on August the 12th, and now you've made the playoffs. What do you think was the key here, Vanny? What did the team do? Well, we did a lot of things. We worked a lot, but we say every time that the big key was uh, getting back to BC Place and, uh, you know, getting home, uh, behaving like uh, a normal uh, football team and uh, having the possibility to live in Vancouver back with our families. And uh, uh, it, it, it meant a lot to the player. The player went to a lot of hardship together. So they create this togetherness and, uh, and helped us uh, uh, I would say, make this home uh, uh, like a fortress. And in fact, we won uh, seven games out of nine at home. And uh, that's a, that, that has been the key of this, uh, I would say, miracle, because that's what we did. We did a, we, we did a miracle in the second part of the season. Right, but you got to keep the miracle going, though, Manny. How do you yeah. do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that, uh, now that, uh, that we're at the playoff, we feel like, uh, you know, that we have a fantastic antipasto. And now the pasta is coming and we want to eat it. That's the thing. <laughs> I like this analogy. Anything with food, I like this. But, yeah. <laughs> so you've got a week, right, before you play uh, Kansas City, but the you've got a regular season record of 4-11-4 and four against Kansas City. Obviously, you, you've got to do better than that. Yes. Um, Kansas City is a very good team, but we don't have to forget that, uh, I think a month ago, like three four weeks ago, they came here and uh, we beat them 2-1 and we... We played very well, so I think it's going to be an, a hard game. If if you ask me at the moment, probably it would be like it's going to be 51% uh, their possibility to win us 49, only because we play in Kansas City. But uh, we need to be respectful of them, but not scared of them at all. Right. You make a good point, though, because you're going to be playing in Kansas City. How much of a difference did it make for the Whitecaps that they were able to come back home during the season? Yeah, it, it it was everything. It was everything, and uh, you know, and it would it wouldn't be possible uh, doing the results that we did, having the that push that uh, I would say that help from the fans uh, meant a lot. And uh, if we say when when I say we did a miracle and we did a, a fantastic effort to get in the playoff, I don't mean just the players and the staff, but uh, but the fans too, because they helped a lot.
Okay, so how are you keeping the team focused then for the next week? Because this is a bit of a break here between games. Yeah, we had uh, two, three days off because literally, we literally pushed, pushed, pushed in the last week. So we had to kind of regroup. We started working yesterday again and uh, uh, it was, you know, everyone is so excited. They, they, we are really looking forward because uh, uh, to the game. So we focus on the process. We focus on the thing that we are supposed to do. We train every day. And, uh, yeah, we are, I'm actually looking forward to, to next Saturday because uh, now that we're here, we want to we wanna do our best. Yeah, you want to get going, right? You want to, like, let's yeah, do yeah. this. Uh, what about your socks? Uh, yeah, we'll see. Last one, uh, I had uh, a new pair that they gave me that uh, with uh, glasses of wine there because they say <laughs> you're going to celebrate at the end, and it, and it was true. So I'm waiting for uh, Dr. Cox, our <laughs> mental uh, mental coach, to to give me a, a new one for for Kansas City. He, he, he told me that he's gonna have some special one for the for the playoffs. So we'll see. Okay, so now you're not wearing the same socks every single time. Now you have to wear brand new socks of a different pattern every single time. Yeah, you know, it's like uh, I'm 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 following what my what my sock expert is telling. So that's the thing. <laughs> That's a draw. I would like to be a sock expert, but Vanny, listen, best of luck. We're going to keep our fingers crossed, okay? Go get them. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Really interesting report done for the Passenger Transportation Board recently, and it found that apparently we've become all about ride-hailing. Ride-hailing trips almost double the number of taxi trips that were taken. So why is this happening? Well, joining us is Ian Tossenson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association, also, of course, ride-sharing advocate, former president of Ride-Sharing Now for BC. Ian, thanks for being back with us. Boy, I tell you, two years and we haven't talked about ride-sharing. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the COVID effect for you, right? I know. Well, you know, Cindy, I think I'm looking at the graph. Um, people can see it online and you'll see that ride-sharing took over taxis pretty much when we started to see an economic recovery back in the spring of 2020. So it, we, it, we correlate that with the restaurants. And I think we had patios and restaurants starting to reopen. You're start. I think the um, where ride hailing took over was more in the urban areas because the downtown effect uh, was was terrible. So there were a lot of people downtown. There still aren't a lot of taxis rely on the downtown businesses. So their business is flat, if not decreasing. And you're seeing this steady increase of uh, ride sharing uh, companies throughout mainly the lower mainland, which is right. hope. To, uh, to Whistler. But isn't that so interesting, Ian, because that was one of the arguments that many ride-sharing advocates had made throughout the fight to get ride-hailing here, and that is that the outer areas, not just downtown, were not as well served by taxis. Yeah, I think it bears that out uh, entirely, and I think it also, if you look like at companies like Uber, um, they really became, uh, during the pandemic, um, the, what the things they did was incredible. Um, they were they were providing free rides um, up to, uh, I think, 10,000 rides for people to get vaccinated. They were providing rides for uh, gender-based violence. So they did a whole bunch of things to help the community, which is sort of their essence. And I think that people really, you know, they saw that. And they also saw that, you know, when you got into, you know, the, the times that I got into an Uber during the pandemic, they really went the extra mile to show safety, just like a restaurant to demonstrate safety. You felt safe. There was plexiglass. There, were, there still continues to be masks. 
and uh, and they had much more pervasive approach or, or effect across the, the lower mainland, as I said, from Hope right through to Whistler. Right. Like the numbers are pretty stark. So there was about a million ride hailing trips in lower mainland and Whistler in the month of May. It's 2021. So earlier this year. And during that same time, only about 600,000 taxi trips. So what has happened into the taxi industry? Did they not just respond in the same way? Well, I think the, t- the taxi industry is much more traditional. I mean, I, you know, we have been the benefactors, our industry of the taxi industry, and I hope that we continue to do. But I think that the, the, where, it's, where the, the sort of line has been drawn is that if you look at sort of um, people and using the vaccination card, you're hearing that older people sometimes struggle with technology uh, on smartphones. And we're seeing the same thing with, with rideshare is that, you know, the older demographic uh, may not have smartphones. They may like cash. They just have a dependable sort of approach to taxis. And so I think that the, the, the line has been drawn between those uh, sort of in the, in the um, sort of more technology economy using ride sharing versus the traditional one. And I think that taxis will be here, but their market share, it looks like if you look at the graph over the last um, 12 months, they'll have a market share, but the market share is going to be um, uh, somewhat muted. In fact, uh, it's about a third right now of ride sharing. So from what you've seen then, is that what happens in cities when ride hailing shows up? Because I know we were late to get this. So is that, has that been the pattern elsewhere? It is, yeah. I mean, you you see uh, the survival of a taxi industry. I mean, you know, our taxi industry really didn't respond as well, and they had an, another opportunity during the pandemic to sort of refresh their brand. But I think they understand who their marketplace is. I don't think they need all the technology involved with their you know their, their traditional customer base. But uh, certainly, we're seeing the same effect. Vancouver is a mirror effect of other markets in North America. You know, you know, and, but I think that um, I would predict that the pandemic has advanced the use of uh, rideshare uh, just because of you know the, the things that it did. It's interesting at the beginning of your segment, Uber's um, they are advertising for drivers. There's a ride, you know, obviously yeah. there's a, a labor shortage, but a thousand dollars for drivers to join Uber. So um, we saw in talking to a lot of uh, Uber drivers throughout. Uh, it provided a real solid economic platform for a lot of families that were out of work during the pandemic. They're making pretty good wages, too. I think the study that came out in BC is that the average rideshare worker is making about $24 an hour, which is pretty decent for Vancouver. Okay, well, let's talk about then the, what this also tells us. So if that if we had a million ride-hailing trips in Lower Mainland and Whistler in May, and on top of that, 600,000 taxi trips, what does this tell us about the rebound then, Ian? Are, and you put on, you can put on your restaurant hat too. Um, how busy is it out there? It's starting to come. Um, <clears throat> I had a note last night from a, a restaurant owner who's uh, pretty much really watching this, and he said the business is bouncing back. So I think that we're now getting comfortable with the vaccination card. I think it's um, people are getting you know, excited about uh, Christmas and seasonal parties so it's starting to happen i think you know it was a bit tough for the first four or five weeks getting used to the cards and people would show up without having the cards or maybe perhaps your smartphone but um, no it's i think that we're seeing is that this is coinciding so the the rise of ride healing is coinciding directly with restaurants which is you know really good for us because the flexibility i mean we've always wanted that right back to day one is this provided the flexibility for people in the North Shore and all over the place in, in uh, Metro Vancouver to to get to their favorite restaurant. Um, I know that the 
that Uber right now has got some applications and to expand into Victoria and Kelowna. I hope that happens uh, for the sake of our industry sooner than later. The passenger transportation board's been a bit slow on that. But uh, apart from that, I think I think it mirrors the growth of the economy, which is exciting. So are you saying bookings are picking up for Christmas? Are people booking holiday parties? They are. We're seeing group parties, which we did not see last year. Um, you know, you know, we're, and we're seeing people that um, are, you know, booking and very proud of the fact that their offices employees are all vaccinated and sort of checking right. in. So, yeah, it's looking really good. All it's right. Interesting. Really all right, Ian, thank yeah. you. Thanks, Amy. Take care. Now, if you want to take a quick jaunt down to the United States, you have to show proof of a negative PCR COVID test upon your return, whether that jaunt is two hours, two days or two weeks. And now that is really deterring a lot of Canadians from going south. It's also deterring a lot of tourists from coming here because the requirement is the same for them, a negative PCR test. Now, I'm sure many Canadians would say, yes, I would love to be rid of that requirement for us to be able to travel. But are we ready to also drop that requirement to allow tourists to come here? More of them. Well, ski resorts are speaking up on this topic because they say this is dramatically impacting the number of people who are coming to visit their resorts. Joining us now is Pete Woods, president of Ski Big 3. Pete, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Jimmy. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. So where is Ski Big 3? Where are these resorts located? So we're located in Banff National Park. So within Banff and Lake Louise, we have three ski resorts that are part of a collaboration. Um, So that's uh, Banff Sunshine, Lake Louise Ski Resort, and uh, Banff Norquay. So each of those three ski areas are part of Ski Big 3. And our main focus is trying to encourage folks from faraway places to come ski with us for for longer stays. We really focus a lot on those international markets and long-haul Canadian. Okay, so then what has the last year been like? Has it been mostly locals coming? For sure. I mean, last year, even our eastern Canadian skiers weren't even able to come into the province. So unfortunately, they weren't able to ski with us last winter. Um, It's exciting to see there's definitely pent-up demand from both the Quebec and the GTA uh, ski markets looking to come west this year. Um, so we're excited to host them. But as we look south into the U.S., um, it's also really, really high demand, and people have a lot of interest and want to come ski with us this year. But the PCR test and the cost associated with it, as well as the complexity, to be honest. Right. So, Pete, is that what you're hearing from people? Like, are they phoning up saying, geez, we'd like to come, but... Oh, we seem to have lost Pete there for a second. All right, we will get him back. Pete is with Ski Big 3, as you heard him describe there. Uh, he is with Mount Norquay, Lake Louise, and Banff Sunshine. They are three resorts in that sort of Banff area there, and they are calling for the end of the PCR test to come to Canada. Pete is back with us. Sorry about that, Pete. We lost you there for a sec. Sorry about that. That's okay. So I was asking you, is that what you're hearing from people then? They would like to come to the resort. They would like to book with you, but they can't. Well, they they definitely still can book for book with us. It's just the, the uh, current PCR test, as it's structured, is making it really complicated, costly, and it's really pretty confusing for guests right now to even understand how to navigate that. Um, what's interesting is that the federal government put together a task force really specifically to look at the PCR and testing requirements in general. Um, and what they re- the result they came back with was that the uh, test requirement isn't actually beneficial and recommended against it. 
Um, we're seeing this with Portugal and UK as two countries uh, as examples that have eliminated the testing. Um, so they, they simply have used the uh, proof of vaccination as the requirement to enter the country. Okay, so then do you, are you hopeful that this might happen? We are, yeah, we're incredibly hopeful. Um, we know that a lot of the border towns are, are very, very much behind this. Um, it certainly seems to be gaining momentum. Um, I would say, you know, certainly for the Vancouver market, I would imagine it'd be incredibly important um, because there is so much weakened visitation that comes from the Pacific Northwest U.S. Um, right. So, but as we look to winter, um, we're really excited. We have a long, long season, so that that's uh, very encouraging. But um, our peak visitation really kicks in at U.S. Thanksgiving from the U.S. market, which is, you know, approaching quickly. Right. So is the problem then that, like, I guess, Pete, because they have to have the test before they arrive, right? So it's not like something you can organize or you can help them with. Exactly. Yeah. So they need to have the test. Uh, it's a 72-hour test. So basically, they need to have it within 72 hours of their departure time. And oftentimes, it takes 36 hours to get the test results back because they tend to have to send those results out from wherever they're they're taking the test. So it takes quite a bit of time. And they're very expensive, you know, for a family of four, you're looking at, you know, between 1000 and $1,200. So, you know, if, if you're looking at, you know, the overall cost of a, a vacation to come to Canada and you tack another $1,200 on top of it, um, you're probably not going to go ski in Canada. And so we're really, really um, hopeful that we can have the government support us on this and uh, make it easier for our visitors to come here. Right. Do you, think, do you think Canadians are ready for this, Pete? Because it's one thing for Canadians to be able to come back without having a test. I'm not sure they feel the same about allowing tourists in without having a test. Yeah, I don't know how general Canadians feel about it, but I do know that the task force who looked at this really closely and is using science behind it um, has recommended it to go away. So, you know, I think that is consistent with, with what their finding is. Okay, so what are the next steps here then, Pete? Are you just like, is this just a fingers crossed situation? No, I, well, I think we're, we're definitely getting more and more momentum out of it. I believe that there's another press conference being held today in Vancouver. Um, so, you know, I think that we're seeing more and more of the industry, especially within the devastated travel industry, standing up to try and hopefully get through this winter um, because, you know, there's a lot of businesses that just can't take another winter like we had last year. It was devastating for many. Yeah. Um, How do you feel about demand? Like you said, you're getting a lot of interest even from right across the country. Do you do you get the sense that people are kind of like gearing up and they want to go? People want to ski for sure. Yeah, we, we're seeing pace like we've never seen before. So, you know, we have, of course, have almost two seasons worth of visitors that haven't been able to come from a lot of markets. Um, so we have kind of that compounded group of people that keep pushing their vacation back and are hopefully be going to be able to come this year, as well as all the new on top of it. Right. But what's concerning and what we're seeing is that our cancellation rate is double what it would be in a normal year. Hmm. So there's certainly a strong indication. And what we are hearing is that the PCR test and the cost associated with it is a factor in that cancellation. Let me ask you about labor problems, too, because I know a lot of resorts and tourism industry have talked about that. Do you have enough staff? Yeah, well, the resorts are definitely, you know, getting creative on how to, to manage the volumes, um, manage the outlets. Uh, so obviously priority is in the mountain operations and um, they're all they've been working tirelessly, you know, over the last you know six months learning what they 
taking from from last season what they've learned uh, in preparation for this year. So, yeah, I think that they will be in good shape. You know, like everywhere, uh, labor is not easy. Right. So what you need, though, is just the customers. Yeah, we just need the skiers to come. We have the snow. All three of our ski resorts are open in operation right now. And uh, so we're gearing up for a really good year. And uh, we would just love to see those international skiers come back. And they would love to be able to come back as well. All right, we'll see what happens. Pete, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Time now for our leadership series. And for this week, we want to highlight the emergency services. It has been an incredibly and extremely challenging year for paramedics as BC has dealt with the pandemic, with heat waves, forest fires, the opioid crisis. I mean, you name it. However, through it all, paramedics have continued to do their best despite an overwhelming number of calls. So joining us now for the Leadership Series is someone you've heard on our show fairly often. It's Troy Clifford, Ambulance Paramedics Union President and an active paramedic. Troy, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Sammy, for having me on. Um, when, you, when you look back over the past year, Troy, are you just, when you look at the numbers and the calls and everything that's happened, does it just amaze you? It, it absolutely overwhelms me. And, uh, you know, I was reflecting last week at our annual convention where we brought paramedics and dispatchers together to discuss uh, really all our issues and that and it really did almost overwhelm you know, as we've reflected back even if you know it's almost two years where uh, we've been really started dealing with this and it's built on a lot so I mean I particularly last year where things were overwhelmed when we went into the summer and just when things started really you know progressing it, 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 it you know overwhelming is probably the the most captivating word right yeah, I guess so. So, Troy, at this meeting that you had then talking with other paramedics, what are you hearing? Like, obviously, there's been a lot of very vocal paramedics recently. Do you think that's helped? Yeah, I think so. Anything that, uh, you know, people say, oh, Troy, you know, you're, 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 you're raising issues that uh, don't inspire confidence in, in the service and that. And I said, I say the actual opposite. I think that it's more important to have these conversations when things are challenging or when we're, we're not providing the services we do. And, you know, I've taken some heat for that. There's no question. Um, and that's, that's hard for me because I'm not a, you know, I, people say, well, you're political. I go, no, actually I'm not. And that's what the struggle is for me. But really some of the things that we heard was really the, the psychological impact on so many paramedics and dispatchers um, as a result of the work, but also what's really went on with our staffing and shortages um, and uh, the heat dome and all these things that are impacting our, our their wellness and, and that's really what I struggled with. And that was a theme. And the other really encouraging thing was the amount of, um, it, it's our annual convention that uh, we bring paramedics and dispatchers from all over the province to represent each region and, and community. And I, I've been coming to our convention annual AGM, if you wish, for, oh, God, most of my career. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in 33 years. But uh, this is the first time I've ever seen the amount of young and new delegates that we have, almost two-thirds. And the inspiration that they gave me and so many people there and, and the ability to go back to their communities and say, there is hope. We've got a plan and we're working hard for advocacy in that. That was probably the most um, thing that came to light for me, really. And, and, and really discussing, the, you know, our strategic plans and where we go from here to really pressure the people that are responsible for the ambulance service to continue the path to getting us back to that world-class ambulance service and a healthy one. Right. Do you think we're on that track, though, like with all of the people who've been speaking up recently, all the attention that has been paid to this issue? You said sometimes it's not easy speaking up, but does it get the result? 
I, I, I got to be honest. I, I don't think that we've had the success that I'd hoped as quick. I, I think we are on the right path, but, uh, you know, July was a tough month, and I really was optimistic we'd see some more impact quicker so that we don't see those delays and, and the challenges we have. And it hasn't come as quick. Unfortunately, that's the system, and it takes time to train and recruit. Um, and that's where I'm really right now focusing on getting the new leadership and governance model in place uh, and really holding them accountable to actually make meaningful change. Because there has not been a lot of change in the organizational structure and governance within BCHS. And I think that's really where we need to focus on the change so that we can actually get those bums in the seat, if you wish, the healthy bums in the seat, uh, in both in dispatch and in the paramedics. And, and there needs to be a lot more. We've done a lot. There's been a lot of influx, but uh, cleared by what's going on lately, there there is need to be a lot more. Okay, so when you say a lot more, what do you mean? Like, what would make the biggest difference? Well, I think that uh, the three biggest areas are our recruitment, people coming into the profession, uh, stopping, uh, and our, our ambulances in the metro or urban and rural community. We just don't have enough, so that comes to the recruitment, and that means addressing the marginalized uh, precarious work model of the $2 an hour. So those are the two biggest ones. But for anything that we do, we have to have paramedics and dispatchers healthy body and mind. And we're not doing that. We're seeing up 30, 40% of our paramedics are either injured or off work because of psychological injuries. And that has to be addressed. And right now we have a significant joint briefing note before the ministry for approval on a, a vision and a plan to get us through that, but to, um, and hopefully that'll all be included in, in, in the next stage sooner rather than later. Right. So what is that next stage? Like, what is that timeline like? Well, uh, the immediate timeline needs to happen yesterday. We need more uh, immediate actions for more paramedics in the seats and uh, dispatch or training, but it's still seeing shortages of emergency call takers. So that's the immediate stuff that happens. We have to have those uh, influx of people coming into staff or into the service. But uh, longer term, we need to have that uh, 8.59. We need to get that threshold so they're meeting all those critical calls in a timely fashion. And that's the environmental scan of how many ambulances and paramedics and dispatchers we need to meet the demands that we're seeing that have not been kept up to. So that needs to happen immediately so that we can put a training and recruitment plan in place to address the long-term issues of not enough physical paramedics and dispatchers to do the job the, to meet the demands, really. I right. mean, that's a, it's not a, it's not complicated. It's just uh, there needs to be um, really leadership. It's funny we're talking about leadership that steps up and uh, really holds that part of it accountable. Right, but that list sounds so long, Troy. When you put it that way, right? There's the fix it. Like when, yeah. a, when you call nine one one, you want something as simple as you want that to be dispatched quickly. Okay, that's one thing. And then you're talking about looking after paramedics and their mental health and their physical well being. That's uh, that's number two. That's hiring more people. That's number three. This is a long list. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive, and that's why having a, a real comprehensive strategic plan that can be actually executed. And the funding behind it. I mean, that's really the, one of the biggest things is that uh, if you don't have a, if you have a resource issue or a human resources issue, uh, there are two ways you do it, right? You find a way to entice them or, or provide them means to want to do it or attract people. So it is a long list. I mean, it does keep me up at night and many others, um, but it's not, it's not overwhelming. It's really a, you can simple it down to it. If, the, if we're not answering enough ambu- all our ambulance calls in a timely fashion, 
then you clearly need more dispatchers. If one dispatcher could only answer nine calls in an hour or whatever the number is, right, um, and, and you don't have enough to answer the amount of calls coming in, it's a simple math formula. We need to train more dispatchers. So we let's put in courses back-to-back until we meet the demands we have. Um, the alternative, you don't provide the service that you're mandated to do, and I don't think any one of us would accept that as acceptable. No, we would not. Listen, Troy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm humbled uh, for the opportunity to just talk about this stuff and uh, for, your, oh, yeah. for all your support.